What's good, y'all? My name is Jonathan Dumas, and this is the Real Talk with Dumas podcast, where I have real conversations with the people I see every day because we don't know what we miss until we miss them. And y'all, I have another dope episode for you, but just wanted to remind you of a few ways to support the show. Number one, like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Number two, follow RTWD on IG at RTWD Podcast. You know, send me for a DM. Let us know some cool feedback about your favorite episode. And finally, by financially supporting the show. By financially supporting the show, you are literally, and I mean literally, helping this thing run. There are two ways to do that. One is our Patreon page. There's different tiers. I'm actually going to switch that up a little bit on what is available through those tiers, but there's a tier for everybody and different things that come with that. Go ahead and find us there. Those are, um, that link is in the show notes. And then number two, our coffee page. If a monthly subscription is not your vibe, you can always, and I mean always, slide your boy a few dollars when you have it because this thing ain't free. Anyways, on to my guest this week. I am joined by Dr. Wilfredo Alvarez. Dr. Alvarez is an associate professor of communications and media and co-coordinator of communication and social justice at Utica University. And we can add author to the list of things that Dr. Alvarez does because I had the chance to chat with him about his new book, Everyday Dirty Work, Invisibility, Communication, and Immigrant Labor. In it, he explores how Latin American immigrant janitors communicate in predominantly white academic institutions from marginalized standpoints. I look so forward to this. I feel like these are topics that we have touched on a little bit throughout my conversations with different folks. So without further ado, here is Dr. Alvarez. Dr. Alvarez, how are you doing today? How are things going for you? Hi, Jonathan. A great pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for your podcast and for leading these conversations, which I believe are critical today Mm -hmm. for everyone listening and for everyone in this country. So thank you so much for having me on your show to have this conversation. No, I absolutely appreciate it. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting how we got connected, which was another past guest and that I, that I found through a wild different means. It's just wild how connections work. But so excited to talk to you about your book today. Um, I've read a good portion of it so far. Very intriguing, very insightful. And it reminded me of my own time at in college and just like inter- my interactions with some of the uh, custodial staff and support staff at my institution. And it just was very interesting that I was having flashbacks mm-hmm. <laughs> to my interactions. And, I, and I'm sure we'll get into that and dive into that a little bit. But I would love, you know, I read a little bit of your bio, but I would love just to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to the real fam. So as always, I like to ask the question, you know, who is, you know, Dr. Wilfredo Alvarez? Again, thank you for having me on this show. I I apologize. As I told you, I'm a bit under the weather here. So I'll do my best to, to communicate as clearly as possible. So where did you start, right? I am... An immigrant from Dominican Republic came to the United States when I was 17 years old. And and for me, when I think about my personal journey, I, of course, have to think about this immigrant experience and what it's been like for me, but also the the power of education. I was someone who never planned to go to school when I came to the U.S. And I tell this story in the book of my uncle basically forcing me to go and register for high school. And that moment, that event 
represents a, a major turning point in my life, in my in my personal journey. When I, whenever I'm asked, tell me a little bit about yourself. Of course, you don't want to talk about my deep dark secrets and you know, etc. <laughs> Oftentimes, I'm trying to be funny. It would make for a great show, though. It's <laughs> a different show, though. That's a different show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, trust me. Yeah, I could go there, but that's probably not the, <laughs> the answer that you're looking for. I, yeah. But I immediately think about, you know, my my differences in relation to, to people who were born and raised in the U.S. for whom English is their mm. native language. You know, I had to learn this language as an adult. And uh, I mean, mm. talking with a Spanish teacher yesterday, just yesterday, she tells me about the difficulty that many of her students have learning Spanish. I'm like, yeah, I understand. I had to learn English as a young adult. And then everything that comes with that, you know, people's perception of you as someone who's from another country, you know, as a foreigner, which yep. is what I am. So, you know, for me to give you a glimpse into where I come from as a teacher, as a scholar, I have to start with, you know, hey, I'm an immigrant who has had to navigate this society. And that sort of experience comes with great challenges that I try to articulate in some ways in the book. But yeah, native of Dominican Republic. I'm a college professor. I'm, I'm, I claim to be, I call myself an educator. You know, mm -hmm. I'm greatly influenced by many people, many mentors who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. So I also study and teach about personal relationships and their significance. So just, just mm -hmm. to give you a brief glimpse into the things that, where I come from, the things that motivate me to, to do my work. That's awesome. No, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and yeah, I, I feel like, especially, you know, as I've like gotten older, understand I'm, I'm originally from San Diego. I live in Southern California and I grew up just a few minutes from the border. So like the immigrant experience, I, I, I've been adjacent to it a good majority of my life. And like a lot of my friends immigrated from Mexico or like further down South. And so like, I, yeah, I, you know, it's not new to me and it's never been like this thing that really bothered me because a majority of my friends <laughs> were from a different country. I were first gen. And so like, as I got older and like started seeing all this rhetoric around immigration and it's not new, but just, you know, for, for our generation, you know, as, as far as like these things and to see in re more recent years, it being taking a more, what's the word I'm, I'm thinking, like center stage approach since, you know, 2015 ish, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and came back hard with a vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm curious for you just to get into your book a little bit. Like, I think the perspective that you go about from, from your book was, is looking at it at like educational institutions yeah. and then looking at the, the support staff or custodial staff in those and like trying to hear their perspective a little bit. You know, what, what led you up to, to that decision or, or, or reason or perspective to, to write the book? Thank you for that. Yeah. I, I, and, when introducing myself, I forgot. This is relevant to the to the answer to your question. I forgot to mention that I migrated to New York City, so mm, I mm, went mm. to high school in New York City. Uh, so I am from New York City in the U.S. That's okay. that's also relevant to to who I am as a person because that's a place that really shaped my idea of what the U.S. is and isn't. And you know, I'm one of those people that due to 
the fact that geographically I'm from the East Coast, that I have the level of education that I have. You know, I'm one of those people who have been called, you know, coastal elites, right? I, mm-hmm. Of course, given what you just said about the last five, six years, that has taken on a, on a really interesting meaning in terms of, you know, the polarization that we have in this country. Your question is about my motivation to write the book, basically. Yeah. What are the main factors motivating me writing the book? Just so that I'm, so that I'm clear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the question. So given what I just told you about who I am, having to learn the language, migrating here from another country, basically I wanted to understand what it's like for people with, with not much, I'm trying to think how I want to phrase this, with people who have, do not have a lot of cultural capital. What I mean by that is mm. the ability to speak the language knowing and understanding U.S. culture and society. I basically am interested, I was interested in understanding the experiences of so-called marginalized people. So what I have learned in my experience is that you find a lot of humanity in those folks who are deemed as marginalized. So as someone who became interested in studying issues of organizations and diversity, the idea came that, well, who are some of the folks... uh, you know, reading in graduate school, who are some of the folks deemed most marginalized in organizations? And I ran into this concept of dirty work. When you consider what dirty work is in sociology, you look at garbage collectors, sex workers, housekeepers, cleaning staff, and people like janitors or custodians. So similar to your experiences in college, I remember going to the gym in grad school and always running into Latin American janitors and talking with them and ju- just talking, you know. And what I learned was yeah. that, wow, these, some, of these, some of these people, well, I thought a couple of things. And one of them, which I um, mentioned in the book now in hindsight, was a bit problematic when I, in terms of how I perceived them. And that was, these people must be miserable. I was like, mm-hmm. well, why did I think that about them? Right. I, I, yeah. So, yeah. And that's that's been a long journey since then for me to unpack those thoughts. But I, in talking with several of them, what I also learned is that these people are those folks who are really smart, witty, complex, just like you and me. But on the surface, mm-hmm. once they put on the janitor uniform, they're cleaning our waste. They're immigrants. They do not speak English. Many of them. So when you add all these layers on the surface, it leads to really complicated intercultural communication from many people, especially white middle-class faculty and students and staff at the university that I studied. Those were my motivations there. What is it like to, to occupy those spaces in organizations from the perspective? I became curious. And of course, part of this process is for me to understand my own journey as a member of, of this society in which I'm not part of the dominant group, I'm not part of the majority, I speak a language that's not the dominant language, I'm a working class person, right? I don't come from money or anything like that. Uh, so I wanted to understand what happens once all of those identities overlap, the linguistic one, occupational, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, etc. That's the basic uh, the impetus for the book. 
Yeah, no. And thank you so much for breaking that down and even going it, <laughs> giving it a little bit more context too, because it really helps. Because I think that's the biggest thing that I like fascinated me as one before I even started reading your book, but as I read it, just like the layers, it's just so, it's so layered because like how, not just in the US, like US context of how we view immigration, but like as you like look at, like as you, as you outlined, it's just like the linguistic layer the organizational hierarchical layer because <laughs> like the, and and then where when these folks immigrated here like the even some some of the things you mentioned in your book the professions that they had in their home countries and then when they came here it kind of like that shifts and so like it, it it's so it, it and then to even think of like how we even perceive that role like that that role in and of itself of like dirty work it just the the layers to me it was just like it like had my mind spinning and thinking and even thinking back to my own academic experience, like how you had even said I had those thoughts. And like, even right now, as you said that I was like confronting that to myself of like, wow, I, I actually truly believe that these folks like are trudging to work and, and doing this and doing this job. Like, I mean, if I was doing that job, I would really be miserable, but that, that is not, you know, the case for everybody. Like sometimes it's just like a job and it, and you do it and, and, and it is. And like, they are very happy and or whatever. So the the key phrase that I heard you say is like the humanity that is seen, like yeah. when you actually like have conversations and like dig a little deeper and and to be all to be honest, it's it really actually ain't even all that deep if you have a conversation with somebody or at least initiate initiate that. And I remember one thing, one thing that I heard after I had started working at my my alma mater after I was a student. And one of the folks that I always had a conversation with. His name was Alfredo, and I would always talk. I would always have a conversation with him. He was in my dorm for two years straight, and then I would see him around. And he said, "You know, like students think that we forget about them, like that we don't recognize them, that we don't know who they are." He said, "They forget about us. We don't forget about them." And that like really like messed me up. I'm like, "Dang, Alfredo, (laughs) that's my bad." Like I, it, it really is. It really is wild, and it shows. Like what I see about that is like it doesn't. And maybe I'm thinking too deep into this, but maybe not. It's like we don't see the humanity in those folks that are doing the hard work. And whether that be because they're immigrants, custodial staff or whatever, it's like there there's a human element that is often forgot. And it's, yeah, for me, it's convicting that like I played a role in that, but also like eye-opening to see that like that's kind of like the, that's just the everyday experiences. And I, I'm curious, um, yeah, I'm just rambling now, but yeah, that, that I was just like, the biggest takeaways I, I, I was reading you're on. on a lot of really good thoughts here, good ideas. And as I'm listening to you, I'm like, well, I, I see now why you invited me to your podcast. It's, it's right in your mm. tagline, right? If we don't, mm-hmm. you know, if we don't, if, what, what, how is it? I'm, I'm, if you don't remember, if you don't connect to someone, you, we may miss them. You know, the tagline for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. For your podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause it, we don't know what we miss until we miss them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. I I don't want to lose my my train of thought here, but that that's the key, the the one of the the, the essence I think of, of this to me so far of this conversation and connecting even to my to my to my challenges as an immigrant navigating society and, and this book project, it's this idea of uh, this is I wanted to because this is a, a point I wanted to make. When I was in mm-hmm. graduate school, I remember one of my professors said to us, we do a lot of watching from a distance in this country. And that stayed mm-hmm. with me. 
and I see it honestly at this point. It may just be how my train is, uh, my brain is is trained. This idea that 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 we do just that uh, that that we there is this sense of sort of detachment and disconnect that I have experienced as an immigrant, and I perceive that many oftentimes it's because I am different, and and it, that's regardless of whether the person is white or black or or Latino, etc. Having to negotiate this space of being here, but having to watch others from a distance, it's something that's really, it's real to me. And I think oftentimes you find people, for example, in occupations like janitors, and for many people, they are there, but they're not there. Mm -hmm. That's this idea of invisibility that, that came up, this theme, as I was working on this project. And I try to explain in the book what I mean by invisibility. Clearly, it's metaphorical. It's not, you know, literal. Yeah. There is, there is a body in the room, right? Uh, but in the ways in which they would walk into, so the janitors would walk into someone's office, a greeting would not be reciprocated. Mm, yeah. I went through that just this past week, several times. I'm mm -hmm. like, huh. You know, it's, I find it fascinating, fascinating how those dynamics play out in everyday life. But ultimately, you use, you said the key word here, the concept of dehumanizing others. Mm -hmm. to, to be human, it's much more than being present in a room, in the room, right? To he be yeah. human, it's to engage with each other, period, but just to engage with each other in certain ways. And again, mm -hmm. you know, what I try to showcase in this book, which is a case study, is Here's some of the ways in which these janitors told me that they perceive that others engage and or and do not engage with them. Right. So for me, it's I come back to this theme of, of connection in everyday life and how we miss opportunities to connect with people. And I think there are real implications to that in terms of how we view ourselves in relation to others and how we operate in the world and those implications perhaps related to what's transpired in this country the last five, six years. Are we losing our humanity in this country? You know, it seems to me like a lot of public figures, politicians are just being cruel. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing cruelty, the way they talk yeah. about people, the way. So, and then you have a lot of our friends and family members who support them. Yeah. Do they not see that? Wow. You know, the, what I'm seeing, but again, maybe I'm sensitized because of who mm. I am. Again, being different and immigrant and having to navigate society as an immigrant. I, I'm very sensitized to these ideas. And for me, even a public greeting goes a long way. If I see Absolutely. you in the, in the hallway at work and I say hello and you don't say hello back to me, you know, my, my and then I notice a pattern. My brain starts to go in, in certain directions like, huh? I wonder, I wonder what they, how they perceive me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, those are all great points. I just, oh my gosh. I want to stay on track, but it just reminds me of just like, so I was in a, um, I went to a conference this past week and we had like these racial affinity groups. It was a, a conference about race and how do we keep, you know, this fight for equity going and, and, and having conversations about that. And we had these racial affinity groups and I was in like, obviously the black group because I'm black, African-American slash black. And so like one of the older folks in the group, what I really genuinely like appreciated about it was that it was like intergenerational. 
So it was like millennials, younger than millennials, like Gen Zs. And then you had like the boomer generation, Gen X a little bit. And so this one woman who had lived in my city uh, that I live in, you know, 30 plus years, um, her family came here in like the sixth, well, probably a little bit longer than that. Anyways, she was talking about how she's lived in one neighborhood, one part of the, the city for, for, for a really long time. And it's historically a black neighborhood. And as you know, the black folks got older or their kids took over the homes, either they sold them or they're renting them out and they live somewhere else. Right. And so she had said that, you know, like I'm still living in this neighborhood and you have a whole bunch of like what she had said, like white folks moving in or buying these homes and they Mm -hmm. don't talk to her. And she's like, you're coming into my neighborhood and you're not saying anything to me. And she's like, my family's from the South. You say something, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you say, hello, you say, how you doing? You know, nice weather, something. Right. And she yeah. says, uh, they don't talk to her. And she was like, I don't know if it's like a difference in culture thing, or if it's really because I'm black. And she had found her way, her, her you know, she would greet them. It wouldn't be reciprocated and different things like that. And she was a dark skinned black woman too, which means a little something. And so I, I I I even connect that to my own experiences of like, you know, I lived in Southern California, I live in Southern California, Orange County. I lived in Orange County for 10 years. It's a very, very white place. And the area that I lived in, it was it had a little bit more money. I don't, but they did. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember like when I would walk through the neighborhood, like nobody would say anything to me. Like I would say, hey, how you doing? It would not be reciprocated. And so like, you know, and I would witness it even at the institution that I worked at. I'm just like, it it just it blows my mind, you know what I'm saying? And I don't know if, I don't know if you really are we're, we're talking about like race in particular or or just the hierarchical like places within organizations or the institution that you're looking at, but it just it blows my mind how like these simple ways of it really does play it does something for you and has you think like what does that person think of me that they could not even, you know, open up their mouth to say hello. And it doesn't take that I mean even going back to like a difference in language, like you could say hello, like hi, or, you know, it, it, it's very, it's a very basic interaction, but it really does speak to like a bigger thing. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm sensitized to, to it. Just, like, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, it just, it's so simple, but like, what are you doing? Like what you are, you know, by like not even interacting in that simple, very simple way or not reciprocating it, like what that, what that communicates on a larger scale. And it's just been exacerbated, like you said, over the last few years. But I'm just like, man, like it 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 kind of can be cruel. And I'm just like, I don't understand. I I yeah, it just blows my mind. Like, hey, hey, you read my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Everything you said. Let, let me try to respond to what you just said because it's so No, please do. It's so uh prescient to what I just experienced just this past semester. Because what you just said about, it seems like such a, a small thing, which is not really small, right? It's, yeah, yeah. I would argue it's huge mm. when it comes to our intercultural, interracial relations. Mm. I just, Jonathan, I just told a colleague, what is it with people around here where I live that even a public greeting seems to be a challenge? Mm. So here's what I'm experiencing right now. It could be a culture. But that, and that's fine, right? People are who yeah. they are. We're different. Yeah. Uh, but that, the choice not to say hello or to look the other way, which is what what mm. I keep running into <laughs> around yeah. here where I live, 
in central New York and even at work, the choice of looking the other way sends a message. It's, mm. it's symbolic. As you said, it communicates something. So for that woman, uh, that black woman that was at your conference, right? She's been in this neighborhood. All these white people move in and now no one says hello to her. It goes beyond than just, well, this is how we are. And, and, mm-hmm. and here's, here's what else about this conversation. Here's what else. All the white people listening, when it comes to, well, what can I do? What can I do when it comes to race relations? Say hello to people in public. How about we start there? Yeah. Especially <laughs> if they are not white. Just, just say hello. Yeah. How, what do you think? I know. I know. It sounds silly. Some people are going to be like, well, you know, that's not my thing, right? Especially if you're like in mm-hmm. New York. Forget it. But I think there is something poignant about this exchange in terms of the choices we make in everyday life mm-hmm. to either reach out and connect or not. And again, I think it comes back to your program's tagline. Mm-hmm. I know my partner produced a documentary called In Passing, and it was exactly about this. But what mm-hmm. do you do? What choices do you make when passing by someone who's different from you? Because that's the thing. We perceive this surface level differences and yes of course it could be challenging to reach out to someone even to say hello for some Mm -hmm. but any person any white person that i know today if you ask me well what can i do you're in communication i would say you know try to say hello to someone especially if they are not white and especially if they say hello to you in public Mm -hmm. just reciprocate it It'll send a message of, I see you, I see you. But not saying hello sense could send a very different message. And I think it goes a long way in how we perceive that other perceive us. You said you don't know if it's race or something else. Of course I thought it was race. Yeah, well, I did too. I just... <laughs> I think a lot of people don't say hello because of who I am. What am I supposed yeah. to do? Especially when it's yep, a pattern. Yep. You know what I mean? When it's a pattern, when it's a clear. Yeah, if it's a pattern, for sure. What am I supposed yeah. to think, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyways, I was going to crack a joke, but I'll leave it alone. No, but I, I think as you were talking to when like, like the message it sends is that you're not welcome. Like, 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 yeah. especially if yeah. it's like in the neighborhood, like if you are, you're one of few, if you are, you know, on a. I'm putting this in air quotes, lower rung in the hierarchical like society. It's like, you're not welcome, like, yeah. or you don't matter. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. To not even like greet somebody. And I, don't, I was gaslighting myself earlier when I said like, it's not that big of a deal, but like, it is a big deal. Like, it's a big deal to me <laughs> when somebody doesn't. Yeah. Like when nobody reciprocates that. I, I, I rem- Yeah. No. Yeah. That's what yes. it's about. The everyday choices that we make to try to connect with someone who on the surface, you know, historically is someone who's, who has low symbolic value, right? You know, a janitor, occupationally mm-hmm. speaking, low, a low level of prestige, occupationally speaking, do you choose to acknowledge their humanity or not? So, you know, in a, in a way that's, that's at the essence of this book. And it's exactly what we're talking about. Mm. It's, it's a book about yeah. mundane yeah. communication and the choices that we make mm. to, to reach out and move beyond watching each other. 
and, and mm-hmm. seeking to connect and acknowledging acknowledging each other's humanity. I'm curious, getting on back to getting like mm-hmm. more of a direct question about your book. I'm curious because I haven't finished it yet, but I'm curious, has there was there any like points of connection that were made from like the the participants in your study to like anybody in the institution, say like at a at a higher higher level that were like meaningful or substantive. I'm I'm just curious if there was like anything that that happened on the other side of that. That's a good question. So I wanted to understand what it was like to live life as a janitor. Mm-hmm. I even worked as one briefly for several months, part time. But your question has to do with, if I understand it correctly, was there any feedback that, that was given to, to administrative staff and the leadership, et cetera, from this experience? No, from- I was, well, that's a good question. But I was asking, like, I'm curious if, if like the staff, like the janitorial staff or custodial staff, like if they had any like meaningful connections throughout their time like working there with anybody outside of just like those who like colleagues or anybody i'm i'm curious if there was any like relationships um that were built for somebody any significant relationships that were built with like folks in you know a vp role or like yeah. professors or anything like that you know i'm curious if there was any other outcomes besides you know these these other ones cuz i'm I guess the reason why, and does that make sense? Like, does that question make sense? I, I'm just curious if there was any, any, anybody that <laughs> went against the grain of what normally happened um, in those situations that did say hello, that did engage in conversations. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious. Yeah, it's yeah. a good question. Based on my experience with these folks, I, I interviewed 25 people. There's, there, you're, all, you're always going to find outliers in any complex mm-hmm. system made up of many people. So of course there was there were many people who who greeted them and said hello and were friendly etc. Um, yeah, yeah. But the basic message I got from the large majority of this group of janitors, it's important to to state that I'm not seeking to generalize in any way with my book and say this is what all janitors go through, right? I just mm-hmm, wanted mm-hmm. to study this organization and this group of people specifically. So, so basically, the message from many of them was that, in essence, the higher the title, the role, the 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 more unpleasant the person behaved towards them, mm. and that you know some people may say, well, you know, yeah, I'm not surprised, etc. But again, what story does this book tell? What what story does it tell about the chasms, the distance? Among us uh, as people, it's uh, when it comes to our, our social roles, our labels. And what I do invite people who read the book is see if you can extrapolate any of these themes from this book to the larger society, right? There are many people who, and I, and I thought about this, for example, we just had a Supreme Court confirmation process. So the first Black woman was confirmed to be part of the Supreme Court. What yes, is? Yes. And of course, many people are not happy with that, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And then, and then the question for me is: Imagine if we were to affirm more black little girls, and how many more of them we should have had by now on the Supreme Court? Not only on the Supreme Court, but the presidency, etc. But instead, what mm-hmm. we choose to say is. 
You know, they are not like us. They are deficient. They are this. They are that. So imagine if we did the opposite and affirmed them, right? And, and you know, the president said, it's time that we tap into our talents as a nation. And of course, mm-hmm. uh, President Biden, of course, he's correct. Uh, we are a diverse nation full of richness and talents when it comes to our human capital. But sometimes mm-hmm. that gets suppressed because the person is not white or male. So think about mm-hmm. that. Only one third of our population or so is white males, right? But, you know, there, is, there has been almost total dominance from that group towards other, the other groups in society. What if we were to elevate mm-hmm. people? Imagine that. Uh, but when we get into ideologies of hate, like white supremacy, they are fundamentally a zero-sum game in their orientation, mm-hmm. right? If you are winning, that means that I am losing. And I mm-hmm. think that, that manifests in our, in our interpersonal dynamics, in organizations and elsewhere. Right. When we talk about white supremacy, which I believe is probably the worst disease inflicted in mm-hmm. in modern humanity, this idea that some groups of people are fundamentally superior to others, mm-hmm. um, fundamentally at the core, they have a zero sum game orientation. If a non-white person is doing well, then that means that a white person is not doing well. And I think that's where we run into problems. Uh, and I think that's where we're running into problems today with this political polarization that exists. That mm-hmm. if some people are taking these positions, like the vice presidency, then that means there is a white person who doesn't have that position. And I think unless we overcome ideologies of hate, like white supremacy, it's going to be, it's going to be, we're going to have some problems as a society. Mm, yeah. Hmm. I know I gave you a lot. So. No, I, well, I'm trying to figure out which, which way to, to take it because like, as you were talking to, I'm like, oh, I need to do an episode on white supremacy. <laughs> but the other side of that is like, you're, you hit on something that was like, so poignant. It's like, it is like a zero sum game when we operate out of a place of scarcity, right? Of like, I don't get this thing, then I, yeah, then, you know, everybody else is going to have it. So, so like we hoard, we, we operate out of greed, we protect, we don't uplift other people and ultimately like dehumanize the other because like anybody that's in my camp, uh, anybody that I have an affinity towards or, or that is in, that is like me, we have to protect that, which you're in, yeah, spot on and saying that it just is. It just like white supremacy culture is just so it really it's so pervasive, right? That it's infiltrated every it's who we facet are. of of our yeah yeah it, it is it is and and it, it it regardless of skin color like it it is like infiltrated. It's like an ideology. It's like it's so pervasive everywhere, and so you have to like actively fight against it, actively go against the grain, and so like and it's not it's just funny like how we could it's not just enacted, say again. it's not just enacted by whites by the way. None yes. No. Yeah. Exactly. None, uh, yeah. Of course, the idea that they are inferior to whites. So it's also important mm-hmm. to highlight that idea. I've heard yep. the word tribalism a lot lately. Well, you know, humans mm. are, you know, uh, tribalistic, etc. Yeah, I, <laughs> I get, I get that. 
like as a species we are but there are all of these sophisticated sociological mechanisms that have brought us here yes right at the end of the day i'm a social scientist and we have crafted a really fancy and sophisticated symbolic system discursive system that we have created all these stories in which we've told ourselves this is who we are Mm-hmm. And this is who they are. And that's it. We have internalized all these stories. And many of us are comfortable with those stories. Yeah. Right. And I tell my white students, my students in my intercultural communication class, still in the 21st century, based on all these stories we've crafted, it's good to be white in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's also good to be a man. Right. I'm talking about diversity now. It's good yeah, to yeah. be heterosexual. Mm-hmm. It's good to be middle class or higher. It's good to to speak the dominant language fluently. There are all these mm-hmm. layers of advantages and disadvantages that humans we just have, and they are built on all these fancy stories, this you know discourse systems that we have built or communication systems. And some of us just internalize them and and operate and just without any critical awareness of what's happening. Especially and, if it benefits the person, uh, <laughs> the individual. Yeah. yeah. And some of us, it's, it's like we see, and I was like, oh, this is messed up. But, oh, well, well, it doesn't affect me in any way as well. Yeah. You know? so, so, I mean, yeah. But, and until, you know, again, the value of education, the significance of education, right? Until we we learn how to challenge ourselves, until we learn how to challenge other people in our spheres of influence, when it comes to all these issues of difference and diversity, we're going to continue to 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 have a lot of these problems when it comes to intergroup conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reminded of like this idea, and uh, and it connects. But this, I did a trauma informed like care training, and and we were asked the difference, like, what is the difference between like being unsafe and just being uncomfortable? Because like, if you're being uncomfortable, you have to be able to sit in that and understand like, yeah. you know, that there is a way out, that there's a way to navigate this thing that you're just uncomfortable. Like right now is a place that you're just like, eh, it's almost like you, you, you know, <laughs> you got a lumpy, lumpy cushion, you know what I'm saying? And unsafe is like, you're actually in danger. And sometimes I feel like, in this conversation, when when we're talking about like how the demographics of the U.S., I mean, they have been changed, but they're they're continue they're going to continue to change. And like there is just this like for those who truly subscribe to like and wholeheartedly the replacement theory, that's exactly what I'm I'm hitting at. Yeah, like this idea from the replacement theory has instilled this idea that like white folks are going to be replaced, which instills like this fear of being unsafe. Right, that like once. Other folks are in power, that they're going to replace you. They're going to like oppress you. Like you're going to have no place in society whatsoever. Right. And it's instilling like this unsafe, like insecurity and scarcity mindset when it really capitalizes on fear. But like what is actually this, this idea, and I've seen it play out in like microcosms where a white person gets in spaces where they're the only because they're not used to it. It's actually uncomfortable, but they feel, but it, it feels like they're unsafe, but it's actually uncomfortable and like they don't even realize that like you're just uncomfortable and that like no harm is going to come to you that everything's going to be all right you're just not used to this right and it it just is so it, it yeah the, like i see it on a grand scale of the harm and getting to what to your point of like the harm that that can do 
Like when you when you really like we have seen it right with the with the, the shootings that have taken place that are particularly targeting people with the rise in anti-Asian hate that has always been there, but is we've yeah. seen it increase in the last three three years with this just like incredible like visceral response to to immigrants, whether it have been the Haitian immigrants, whether it have been along the Texas border as well. It's just like there's just this visceral response. Um, and it's all like rooted in this fear and like dehumanizing of other people that like is that is somehow not somehow purposely slashes oh like always been in like these stories of like what it is like what it is who american is supposed to be who is supposed to have a place in the u.s and it yeah i i, I think you're, you're speaking to something yeah and, and really like outlining it really really well so no i appreciate that i just like that was just the immediate thought that came to mind I, that because that's so recent i'm just like man like <laughs> it, i it's just so much there yeah no it's i mean these conversations as you know are, are yeah but but obviously both of us believe that they are necessary but what mm-hmm. you're describing there at the interpersonal and the group level is a power shift mm. i've asked my students a similar question uh, in terms of well you're white and you walk into a room of people and everyone's black how do you feel Mm-hmm. And most students say, yeah, probably uncomfortable. But the concept that you're highlighting there is that of a power shift, right? And again, when you've mm-hmm. benefited from the advantages of society as it is constructed, right? So imagine if you're heterosexual and all of a sudden holding hands in public with your, let's say you're a man, you're holding hands with your, your wife, uh, who, who's a woman, then you begin to see a pattern shifting towards people calling you names, perhaps even engaging in acts of physical violence. Mm-hmm. Heterosexual people, stop holding hands in public. That's weird, mm-hmm. right? So imagine that type of shift. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm thinking in my, own, in my own case as someone who identifies as heterosexual, that would be hard for me to process. Mm-hmm. So you have a society in which... You know, white European Americans have been the numerical majority and they've lived among each other for the bigger, the greater part of the the last century. And all of a sudden you begin to see more people like you in public, more people like Mm -hmm. me in public, in films, TV commercials. There's all these interracial couples now. I don't know if you've noticed. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's yeah. interesting to see the races that are represented and the couplings, right? You rarely, mm-hmm. you rarely see a black woman and a white man. It's almost always a white woman and a black man. Or did I mean mm-hmm. to say the opposite? Anyways, it's interesting. Pay attention yeah. to that. It's very interesting. Yeah, very um, interesting. Yeah. So I think what we're seeing right now, number one, I think uh, a lot of people should be very concerned about just the public acts of violence that we're mm-hmm. seeing. You know, it's symbolic violence, rhetorical violence, not just physical violence. I believe, you know, rhetorical violence could actually go much, much further That if that continues. And I'm troubled by many of our mass media outlets and all this, the hate that they're spewing. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but, but that is essentially what this country is going through right now. It is the renegotiation of the idea of of unchallenged white male dominance. Mm. That's what's happening right now. Uh, unchallenged white male dominance is getting decentered, right? And then we're yep. in the midst of that process sociologically. 
now we're having to say, well, you know, we, we all live here. Could we, how could we coexist? And I just watched a news report from Vice News, which I really like. And mm -hmm. it, it was about Hungary being a conservative utopia, right? And, mm -hmm. and the message in that report was that there were many American, U.S. American conservatives at this conference. And basically, the message from that report is we have some values and they're non-negotiable. We're not going to change our values. The reporter asked this particular person on the conference, well, what about diversity and inclusion and the fact that the U.S. is such a diverse society? And he said, and the guy at the end of the news report says, you know, we have these values and I'm paraphrasing and they're basically non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. And that's how many people see their place in U.S. society. This is mm -hmm. a white nation. This is a Christian nation. This is a heterosexual nation. And some of these ideas are non-negotiable. I think that's what we're seeing through our politics today. The question is, the point is, however, blacks are not going anywhere. Latinos are not going anywhere. Gays and lesbians mm -hmm. are not going transgender. People who are a-religious are not going, right? So where yeah. do we go from here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the question. And to even bring it full circle, like if you're like overwhelmed and feeling like, I don't know what to do with all the things that we talked about, it's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you can greet somebody, you can humanize them and just say you hello. You can say hello to someone who looks like me in public if you're white, please. Yeah. Even yeah. a smile will go a long yeah. way. It goes a long way. Yeah. I talked to this guy about a tree walking down the street. <laughs> he was, kept looking at a tree. I said, it's beautiful. huh? And we talked and it was nice. Just like those simple human interactions. But Dr. Alvarez, I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much. I know what's interesting is that we talked about your book and like took some aspects out of it, but all of this relates, right? It gets to the heart of what you're saying in your book and communicating in your book of like humanizing folks, the social identity, the overlapping social identities that kind of occur within society and how we, we view people. But like your, your book like really highlights a, a particular group, but it's a microcosm that really highlights what's going on particularly in in the US context right now. It's just really wild. And and to be quite honest, if anybody's paying attention to like global news, like this idea of like some form of replacement theory, some form of like, you know, immigration hate, all these different things, like it is a very pervasive like thing that's happening right now. It's happening all over the world. So, but like thank you so much for bringing everything that you brought today, sharing your wisdom, your knowledge. I would love for folks to tap into what you're doing and also be able to get your book. I'm gonna make sure to plug all that, but would love for you to, to share where folks can get connected with you and, and, and purchase and, and read your book. Yes, so I'm on Twitter. I posted the book and my, hand, my Twitter handle is my last name, Alvarez, and my first name, Wilfredo. There is a link there. I'm on Instagram. Uh, my last name, Alvarez, W, and the number 1212. I'm on LinkedIn, my first name, Wilfredo, last name, Alvarez, comma, PhD. I'm also on LinkedIn. And I'm on Facebook. Also, just search by my first and last name, and that should come up. Uh, I, I've posted links of the book. Uh, people could also go to the Ohio State University Press website directly. Mm. and But the book is also on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, so... So if you just Google my name, Everyday Dirty Work, or just Google my name, the link will show up. One of the first links is one for the book 
for the publisher, Ohio State University Press. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. I will be sure to uh, drop all those links and, and where to get in contact with you as well as your book in the show notes so folks can cop that. But really, really appreciate you and your time today. Thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. This podcast was produced by myself, Jonathan Dumas. Additional production help by the incomparable Lindsay Dumas with music by the oh-so-talented Mr. Tony Deras. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and leave a review. It really helps folks discover the show. Till next time, y'all. Peace.